I had applied to a job with my current company um, right before I left, actually, in November and didn't get it. And then around the time that we were in Uruguay, so during our first month, I saw another posting for a similar position. And I thought, you know what? I have nothing to lose. I don't have a job right now. Like, they can reject me a second time. And Becoming okay with rejection is like, (laughs) it's a great gift. Welcome to Modern Work. I'm Katherine Conaway, and I talk to people about the work they do and how they got there. In this episode, I talk to Maya, a friend I met while traveling, about her college education, going to Harvard Law School, working for a DC law firm, and getting a remote job with Travel Noir. We spoke about pursuing your interests and finding creative solutions, the value of travel, and being engaged with the world around you. I first interviewed Maya in Vietnam in 2017 while we were working remotely and traveling together with Remote Year. We did a follow-up interview over Zoom before the pandemic and talked about her current job working for a hotel company based in D.C. and her newsletter, Holding Chair Weekly, both of which you'll hear about later in this episode. For the episode's show notes and Maya's bio, please visit modernworkpodcast.com. Please enjoy the show. Would you like to introduce yourself briefly? Sure. So my name is Maya Yet. I am on remote year with Catherine. I'm originally from Silver Spring, Maryland, right outside of D.C., and I'm currently working as an operations associate for a startup called Travel Noir. Very cool. Well, thank you very much for being here. Of course. We are recording this in my lovely bedroom, staring at the wall in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. It is the last month of remote year. So sad. It's so sad. <laughs> it's a little bit surreal. <laughs> yeah, we can't get into that too much because it gets too weird. Uh, you mentioned you're from Maryland. Do you want to just give like a brief backstory of kind of like where you grew up and then what what led you to the school you went to? Sure. So um, I'm from Silver Spring, Maryland, born and raised. Grew up there. Um, it's about borders D.C., but I was growing up about half an hour outside of the city, and both my parents worked in D.C. Um, to this day, so while I was growing up. Did you spend a lot of time in D.C. growing up, or were you kind of separate from that? I was a little bit separate from it, but because of the nature of Silver Spring and, and the county that I grew up in, it's a really, really diverse area. I went to public school all my life, and public school was pretty diverse, so maybe you know, 40% white, 30% black, and then a mishmash of like Hispanic and Asian. So the area has a lot of ethnic foods, a lot of immigrants and and, um, families who kids who are first generation. And so growing up, I was exposed to a lot of different cultures and and have friends um, that I think is a pretty diverse friend group, which sort of led to my next step, which was college, obviously, but looking at college, kind of thinking about where I wanted to go, it was important to me to be in a place that I felt comfortable. And I I actually (laughs) think I regressed a little bit. I went to Wake (laughs) Wake Forest University um, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is pretty much just black and white. I think it's getting a lot better now, but um, I, my mom is originally from South Carolina and have some family in North Carolina. And so for whatever reason, spent a lot of time in the Carolinas growing up and looked at a lot of colleges there. So my first choice had been UNC Chapel Hill um, and and Duke. And after I visited, I was looking at UNC <laughs> and Duke and didn't go to either. But that's yeah, so funny. So after I visited, kind of felt like I wanted a smaller school environment. And Wake Forest is about an hour and a half south. Um, yeah. So ended up there. Very cool. And when you were so you went to Wake Forest kind of because you knew you wanted to be in the Carolinas 
And did you have anything in mind of what you want to study or you were just kind of looking for like, this is the college environment I want? I wanted a liberal arts school. Um, I knew that I wanted to do probably something with journalism and communications. I had written for my um, high school paper and also worked on our television production station. It was actually a humanities focused um, high school. You had and a TV production station in your high school. We <laughs> did. UBTV and the Blake Beat was our paper. Wow. So I was associate editor of the paper. Um, and then occasionally anchored the Friday morning news that was broadcast out as like announcements instead of <laughs> a teacher coming on. Oh, wow. <laughs> we did not have speakers. that. We had like the school secretary in my like 3000 person <laughs> high school being like the wrestling team has a thing this weekend. We're like, okay. Yeah. So we, it was, pretty, <laughs> it was pretty legit. Like people did it Monday through Thursday and then the sort of, that was a core team. And then on Fridays, a different class would come in and do it. So it was fun. Um, but so I knew going into college that I thought that was what I wanted to do. I had an internship in college, writing at a magazine, doing editorial work. Um, and so that was my background. And then somehow I ended up going to law school. So you did study communications in college and did those internships. Did you go straight to law school? Yeah. So my major undergrad was communications and I double minored in Spanish and international studies. Um, and then I went straight to law school. Yeah. How did you decide that that was what you wanted to do right up instead of working or something else? So I think um, I decided probably my junior year that I wanted to go to law school. I, I got the idea from one of my friends who was talking about doing a JD MBA. And I was kind of like, that sounds fun. Um, but I didn't want to study for both exams. And so I studied just for just for the LSAT, got into law school and decided I would apply for business school once I got there if I felt like I wanted to. And I decided after I got to law school that I actually <laughs> didn't want to do an MBA. But um, around the time I graduated, which I think is around the same time you graduated in 2009, just yeah. there weren't many jobs out there. And I applied <laughs> actually to be like a paralegal at the firm that I ended up going to after law school. And I was like, there's no point in me like working for a couple of years as a paralegal, if I'm going to end up going to law school anyway, I might as well just bite the bullet and yeah. do it now. Yeah. I think, I think graduating in 2009, I mean, we both went to liberal arts school. So I think we were kind of like not necessarily on a strict career track to begin with, but coming into the fall of our senior year and having the economy just in the utter toilet and, and knowing that the people like our older friends who'd had like internships and jobs and we're getting things set up and all of a sudden we're like, we are not going to be employed. Like, what are we going to do? Tons of people went to grad school right away. Um, and I do think like often it is nice to work before you do a graduate program, but like, it's also good to just have something working for you. That's how I ended up abroad. <laughs> I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do for a job. I'm just leave the country. Fair enough. Yeah. It was interesting. I think my class in law school was largely people who were coming straight through, but the more senior classes, all people, everybody had taken time off and worked for a little bit. And you could sort of see that changing as the economy changed. Um, the classes that came in after us had also taken time off and worked because they were able to get jobs as the economy improved. So I think it was sort of just a result of the economic times. Yeah. So where did you end up going to law school? So I went to Harvard for law school. Um, I was between Harvard and Georgetown. Um, and Georgetown's obviously in D.C. That was sort of home for me. But I had always felt like I wanted to go back to D.C. after 
school. And so I figured if I could have another few years outside of that area, then I may as well take advantage of it. And so once I went up to Harvard for Admitted Students Weekend, I basically told myself, you know, I'm not going to go just because of the name. As long as I have a good time and like the people, um, I'll go here. And we got really lucky with the weather. It wasn't cold and rainy and snowy. <laughs> it's very beautiful when it's very beautiful. Yeah, exactly. So, it, you know, all things conspired and I had a great weekend. And so that sort of made my decision. And so I was there in Cambridge for three years and then made my way back to D.C. When you were in law school, was that a pretty strict track or did you have like certain things you focused on in your studies? So, no, it was the, the first year of law school for us was very strict in terms of their seven core classes that you have to take and don't ask me what they are because I couldn't even remember how many people are in your your class um we were it's a very big law school 560 so there were about seven sections of 80 people each and are you with those 80 people for like all of that first year so you're with them for the first semester um and then your second semester you have probably two out of your four or five classes um with them, but you're able to build in. So the first semester you come in and and all of your classes are assigned to you and you don't set your schedule at all. And then the second semester, the remainder of your core classes are assigned and then you pick your electives based on the other free time you have. All that free time. I've heard (laughs) law school has a lot of it. The the other holes in your schedule, (laughs) I should say. Okay. So you had this first year that was kind of set and then what did you move into studying then the second and third year I kind of was um just a little bit all over the place um I took a few international classes I took a handful of classes that related to media so things like copyright um international citizenship what does it mean to be a citizen so sort of blending my background and interests and in all things international um as well as media so one of my favorite classes was like a one-hour elective on sort of documentaries and what does that mean in the sense of the law. And it was taught by a fairly young, I think she was like in her late 20s at the time, um, woman who had gone to law school but then ended up making documentaries and becoming a documentary filmmaker. So you finished law school and had you done some of those internships that kind of like feed you into a specific job? Yeah, so I... um, really thought that I wanted to go and work in government. And you would think that those jobs would be a little bit easier to get um, as summer internships. And so I applied to jobs at the State Department. I applied to jobs at um, like local courthouses and things like that. Didn't get anything. But what I did get was somebody at a law firm in Boston saying, hey, we want to come interview you and like see if you would want to come in and work at, work as a summer associate during your first year summer. And usually summer associate programs at law firms are only available for second year students, but a lot of firms more recently have opened them up to smaller groups of first years, mainly diverse associates, um, because they're trying to sort of start the pipeline a little bit earlier. And so I ended up going to work at this firm in Boston. Um, And I accepted for their Boston office and after accepting, decided, hey, I don't want to stay in Boston this summer. It's, you know, I I would love, you know, to see the city when it's warm and the weather's nice and to do the things that I don't have time to do during the year. But I also want to spend some time at home. So I ended up spending the first half of my summer in Boston and then going to their D.C. office for the second half of the summer. So it was actually like they were willing to kind of be flexible and negotiate. Yeah, once I, I had already accepted and kind of 
it was a, I was a little bit late in the process making that request, but it ended up working out fine. And they have a DC office, they have a summer associate program there. And so it was pretty easy to, to do. Um, and so at the end of that summer, I got an offer to come back the following summer and work with them again. But I sort of decided that I wanted a different experience and I did want to go to a different firm, but I wanted to see what it would be like to be at a firm that was based in Washington, D.C. This particular firm was based in Boston um, and a firm that had going back to that communications that had a communications practice. Um, D.C. has a slightly different market in terms of focus um, in the legal area. And so I went after programs that were in um, D.C. So I would assume D.C. is a lot of like legal and government. I mean, it's all legal, like government related work or do they have other industries or focuses that are? Yeah. So there are a lot of. um all the normal focuses. So DC is very heavy on the litigation side. So anything dealing with the courtroom or trying to avoid getting into the courtroom um, <laughs> as well as it's one of the few places that you'll find a big regulatory practice. So that's all of the government things dealing with um, like the FCC, the FDA. So my firm that I ended up going to has a huge FDA practice. So um, advising pharmaceutical companies on government regulations, advising TV stations on FCC regulations and all that sort of thing, things, those sorts of things, um, as well as a little bit, we had a big privacy practice. And so working with um, companies to develop their privacy policies, thinking about particularly as everything has moved towards the internet and data collection, thinking about what that looks like. Um, and then a little bit smaller, which because this is mainly a New York-based practice, is corporate work. So mergers and acquisitions and all yeah. of the big deals. Yeah. So when you were interested in communications, was that like the FCC stuff or something else? Yeah, it was the FCC stuff. It was a little bit of the privacy stuff. Um, so I did a handful of those sorts of projects over the summer and every firm structures their summer associate program differently. Mine, um, we had unique projects for one to two weeks that were sort of research based, but allowed us to meet with the lawyers who are working on the bigger overall case and sit in on their calls and understand what the bigger picture looked like. So we could imagine ourselves working on that as um, full-time associates. Did you, do you think that those summer associate programs are really valuable and like helpful for law students or I don't, cause I mean, I haven't done any kind of graduate program and I haven't done those formal like MBA law school internships. And in some ways, it seems like they're great because you'd get all this experience. You kind of get to move through the different kinds of projects. But um, yeah, I don't know. I would say yes and no. I think um, my firm did a particularly good job about trying to give us a realistic expectation. Um, the big thing I think you find particularly at New York law firms is a culture of, during the summer associate program of partying and sort of wooing people and courting them and trying to make them want to come to your firm. Um, and so that means a lot of parties and drinking and, you know, like tickets, tickets to stuff. Shakespeare in the theater, Shakespeare in the park <laughs> and like lovely things. Um, whereas we didn't get that all the time, but what we did get was FaceTime with a lot of partners, FaceTime with a lot of associates to really understand what it was they were doing. And it's impossible to understand what the day-to-day -day grind of being a lawyer at a big corporate law firm is going to be like until you're there. But I think the best you can do as summer associate is take advantage of the access and the FaceTime you have to ask questions and really observe like 
when are people getting into the office and when are they leaving and um, what kind of things are they doing and who are they talking to on these calls and like what does their work product look like as opposed to the Your experience. sort of product like product that I'm putting forth, which it may or may not um, be used and it might just be a research project that will be helpful for them for background or it could be something that's kind of they needed to give me an assignment and right. this is it. Yeah, I imagine it could be pretty easy because there's like this like consistent structure of having the summer associates, like a little bubble that you're in together. It's like freshman orientation and like the other students at school are like at a totally different page that you're kind of floating in. Yeah, and um, we, we try to do as good of a job as possible and giving people a realistic expectation of, of what it will be like. But I still... Um, definitely have friends who went to other firms or have heard stories of people who went to other firms and like wanted to quit within the first month because that was not what they expected. And I thought it was going to be all the partying and everything all the time. And it wasn't. Which partly I would definitely say is like the fault of the firms, but I also think it's like, and not that I think like lawyers should be miserable, but I think we kind of know that going to those big corporate firms like tends to be very intense for the first two years. It's like working on wall street as like, entry-level associate like you know it's going to be many hours of your life exactly so (laughs) I think it's a little bit of naivete on the part of um, summer associates when they come back full-time and don't know what to expect yeah so you ended up at that firm afterwards then yep I did so I um summered so the summer after my second year in law school went to the DC-based firm worked there for the bulk of my summer and then went back to the other firm that I had been at the previous summer for two weeks just to sort of maintain that relationship, make sure it wasn't um, something that I, you know, didn't want to do. And so I got, ended up getting an offer from both to come back full time after graduation. Oh, wow. And Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I chose the DC-based firm only because the I wanted to do more of the regulatory work. I also wanted to be at a firm where I had sort of developed an interest over the summer in more corporate focus work, so mergers and acquisitions and securities um, regulatory work. And the other firm that was Boston-based didn't have that big of a practice in D.C. doing those things. And because it was a satellite office, it was a lot smaller, so 100 lawyers versus like 500. And I just felt like the opportunities um, to do the kinds of work that I wanted there wouldn't be as readily available to me. And So looking at sort of my career trajectory at a firm, thought that the other one offered more opportunity. Yeah. And when you say like you were working on these things and you started this job full time after graduating, what is that day to day? Like what kind of tasks are you doing? Like what does that actually involve for a what associate lawyer? Is Mm -hmm. that what you come in as? Yeah. So everybody comes in as a first year associate. Um, and typically it's an eight or nine year path to partnership, depending on which firm you're at. Um, and so for me coming in as a first year, I was in the corporate group, which means mergers and acquisition, regulatory and SEC advisory work. And so the role of a junior associate is sort of to keep your eye on the ball and and remind all of the senior lawyers about what they need to do, deadlines, um, request from the client that might not have been answered and that sort of thing. And so my so it's kind of project management, a little, little bit. bit of project management, a little a lot of grunt work um, your first year. So coming in. So, for instance, on a big merger, 
Um, you have, you know, two companies that are coming together and there's a huge contract that kind of governs that. And you also have all of these ancillary agreements, which just mean everything else. And so it's usually the job of the junior associate team to get together those ancillary agreements. A lot of them are forms. And so mergers are governed by state law. And so, you know, every document that has to be put together follows the form that meets all of that sort of checks all the boxes of what's required by state law. And so typically we'd go pull um, our most recent set of merger documents and sort of model the current deal documents after those. Um, what ends up happening at a lot of big firms is you're working for the same clients over and over. And so they have their preferred form. And so you'll use those to do their current set. Um, and so it's just a lot of running around, making sure towards the end of the deal, getting signatures and collecting signature pages and putting the documents together. And so there's like physical document making in addition to like pulling things on some kind of online database. And when you're doing the, the information that goes in the forms, like you have files that you're pulling with your hands or in a computer so increasingly? It, de- it depends. Increasingly, it's in a computer and contracts will say, you know, signature is valid, whether it's a PDF or whether it's in person. I did have a number of actual hard copy physical signature pages that we, you know, sign. And so it depends on whether signing is happening in person or remotely. Um, And so if it's in person, everybody will come into a conference room and all the signature pages are laid out and you can sign them. If it's remotely, you'll, you know, send your signature pages to your client in advance. They'll sign them, send them back to you, Mm -hmm. and then you exchange them with the other side. And so you hold them in escrow, meaning you can't do anything with these. And then sort of once the deal is done, you, everybody hops on a call and signature pages are released and it's a big sigh of relief and everybody's happy. Um, So it really depends, but it, you, you know, how much responsibility you get as you move up from first first year associate to second year to third year really depends on how reliable you are as an associate, how quickly you pick up on things. And so, and also how big of a firm it is. So how many, you know, I happened to be at a large firm, but we had a smaller corporate group. And so I had the benefit of really being able to do things that someone more senior than I would have done otherwise, because we didn't have um, sort of mid-level associates. And so that meant that starting in my you know second and third years, I was going to negotiations and helping to take notes there and um, being able to sit in and listen in on calls and other things that I might not have gotten to if we'd had more bodies. So created more work, but also more opportunity. Yeah. Did you have um, like a particular mentor that was assigned to you or did you just kind of find some people that gave you advice or like what helped you through that career? Yeah. So we... Um, and every firm's a little bit different. At mine, we had assigned mentors. So you come in and you start with an associate mentor. So somebody who understands what it is you're going through and can give you advice on you know, how to format documents and how to do how to work with certain partners. And so I had a really great um, associate mentor for my first two years. And then you sort of graduate out of the associate mentor process and you get a partner mentor. And likewise, I had an amazing partner mentor, but he was not somebody that I worked with all of the time. I actually started working with him a little bit more towards the end of um, my time at the firm. But otherwise, it was sort of informal mentoring with people who I worked with the most frequently. And, you know, they see how you perform on one deal and then they request that you work with them 
on another deal. And so you start to learn their style. You can ask them questions and you're working more and more with the same clients and you start to develop relationships with your clients. And so it really, it, it, you know, I was able to have targeted questions if I needed them to go to my partner mentor and to say, hey, here's how I'm feeling about working with so-and-so. What do you recommend? Or, you know, I'm thinking I, towards the end of my time at the firm, I wanted to move a little bit away from securities regulatory work and more towards M&A. And so asking him how to navigate that type of um, relationship and move. And so he's able to answer those, but otherwise it's sort of informal and just based on the people that I work with and who I seek out when I'm slow, I say, hey, do you have anything else that you need help with? Because it was important to me to continue learning from them and not have myself have some free time where I might get pulled onto a deal that I didn't want to work on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you were at the firm for three years? I was there, yeah, three and a half years. Okay. And you were in D.C. at the time. Did you have any free time to do anything else? Did you do anything I did. Else? I did. Um, I, you know, a lot of my best friends from growing up are still in the area. My family's there. My sister was there. So I had free time to, you know, not, I didn't, I didn't have any crazy hobbies. I um, spent a lot of time with my sister and her dog and my family and, you know, going to the movies. I ate out a lot. Yeah. Probably because I hate to cook, but also D.C. had a pretty up and coming food scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very cool. So when you, what kind of made you decide to leave and look at doing something else? Yeah. So I started to see my career trajectory and see what it would be like to work at the firm. And I felt like as much as I liked the work and was good at it and could see a future there and was really supported by everybody there who I was working with, I felt like I didn't want to do it forever. I felt like I wasn't seeing like a direct impact in the life of somebody that I would love to see from my work. And I just wasn't as fulfilled as I feel like I could have been. And I feel like that's a very millennial thing for us to say now. Everybody wants to be fulfilled by what they're doing. But I, I had started to just look at, okay, if this is not, if I don't want to be a partner at a law firm, what do I want to be? And so started to look at in-house opportunities. So going to work for a company in their legal department. Um, and, and it started to look at that and looking at kind of, again, communications-based companies, Discovery and PR, both of which are based in Maryland and DC. So I started- What makes you so interested in communications? I never asked, like, what about that? You know, I don't know. I, I, I enjoy writing. Um, and so I think it was sort of a- vestige of like growing up and having done journalism my grandfather was a journalist and so i think that made me feel closer to him um and i'd like you know like photography and, and tv um so that was sort of the i think the, the background and where my interest sprung from sure okay so i had started the process of sort of interviewing around and just Thinking, my, my thinking was I wanted to be proactive about finding next steps as opposed to getting to a position where I hated my job and I hated coming in every day. And so I was just, you know, putting feelers out to see what I could do. The other thing is it's hard sometimes to go into an in-house role without having more experience at a law firm just because once you're in-house, they don't have the capacity to train you like a law firm will and you're not going to be hand, you're not going to have your hand held. There's not always going to be somebody who's checking over your shoulder and making sure that you've done everything right. And so I wanted to make sure that I wasn't leaving too soon without getting the benefit of um, 
the training that I could at a law firm and the support of everybody there. But I also wasn't sure if I wanted to be a lawyer forever. And so for me, um, going to a business where I was interested in the like what that actual core business was meant that if I was on the legal side, perhaps I could then switch to the business side and that would be an end mm-hmm. there. Um, around the same time all of this was happening, I got an email. I think it was on the same day, actually, from both my sister and my best friend with like a link to an article about remote year. I think this is probably in May of 2015. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's probably was... when I read the article <laughs> from my friend about remote year. It was definitely over the summer and saying, hey, we think, you know, you'd be interested in this. Check it out. And so I was kind of like intrigued, did did some research and said, you know, debated whether it was real or some right, crazy right, Nigerian right. fraud <laughs> uncle million dollar scheme. Exactly. So I, I sort of said, what the hell? You know, why not? I'm in a position where. I think that summer I had broken up with my ex-boyfriend, knew that like my best friend was about to move away in July. Um, she moved to London, so I got to see her this summer, but, and my sister was looking for jobs actively in California. And so I was like, well, it's all- Like that late 20s shift. Like, yeah, <laughs> just, just everything was at a point where I'm like, okay, I don't feel like I need to be in DC right now. Um, at the end of the day, I've only been at my firm for three and a half years. So I was in a good position to where I wasn't leaving to go to another firm, so I didn't want to burn any bridges. I would not have left to go to another firm. I didn't, you know, I, I love the firm that, that I was at in terms of if I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to keep doing this, that's sure. where I would want to work. Um, so I was leaving to go travel. And I think that's one that, of those things, um, if you before you've ever like quit a job or left a job, like it seems like this horrible, oh my God, I'm going to quit. And I remember that when I was quitting my job in New York, I was so worried and I was talking to my parents and I was like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? Uh, because I, I knew I looked at being a head of production and I was like, I don't think that's where I'm trying to go. So I don't need to spend the next five years working in studios to be an HOP. Um, and I thought it was going to be really negative, but because I wasn't quitting to go to another studio, I was just kind of like, I'm going to leave and do something else. I had a really positive experience quitting and they, they like offered me a sabbatical and we, I was like, no, I really just want to, like, I just want to go do something else. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and I still see them when I go back and it's all like, I, I think people think that quitting you, like you have to get another job at a different place. So you have to do this. And I think there's a lot of different ways you can move your career and try different things and maintain relationships with people or not necessarily like immediately leap into the next thing that you're doing. Um, yeah, exactly. So that was really important to me. Um, but I think the other thing was, you know, it's remote year is only a year. And so I was at a point in my legal career where a lot of people sometimes step away and they'll go clerk for a year and they'll work for a judge and then they'll come back. And so a year could have been like me doing that. But I also wanted to leave before I spent too much time there that the only thing on my resume was working at a law firm and any future employers would, you know, outside of the legal field would say, you're not qualified to do anything else. And that was, you know, and thinking long-term and thinking about, hey, maybe I don't want to be a lawyer. It was important to me to be able to diversify my resume, prove to myself that I could succeed in some other field. And so sort of the stars aligned, the timing was right. And I, I applied to remote year. And you got in. I did get in. <laughs> not that I sometimes question like how hard it was 
to get in. I don't yeah. know. I mean, maybe now they're saying no to people. I don't know if they said no to people, but I think it would have taken a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, to I, this. I don't know about the like actual process of what they I mean, I know they get tons of applications, but I feel like a lot of people a lot of people don't weed themselves through some of the steps. And so the initial number is very different than the like actual pool of who's going to be chosen from. And then who they don't just like say, you can come to this later date program. Um, but I think like, even with that, our group was pretty good though. I would imagine Reuters learning more and more about who is a good match for the program and both in terms of personality and like your professional yeah. situation. Yeah. I can only imagine like how interesting it is to look at the data of like who applies, what their jobs are, how many people apply having a remote job already and how many people um, are applying and saying like I did, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm totally gonna, okay with quitting my job to do this, but I'm planning to <laughs> get a job. <laughs> so, which I remember we sat in the van together coming back from coming. We first got to remote year in Montevideo. We were in the van together riding in to figure out what this remote year yes. was going to be. <laughs> and uh, you were applying to jobs. Yes. Yeah, so, so my initial plan, I was planning to do a little bit of freelance writing, which has really not, you know, paid off in any way. It's been just me <laughs> working on my own blog and I'm still stuck in Europe, according <laughs> to the blog. Um, but it's been that. And then I was applying to kind of random jobs that seemed interesting. I, I was lucky and that I had enough savings to at least get myself through a couple of months. And so I wasn't applying to like every job just for the hell of it. I wanted it to be something that if I got, I would actually take. Um, and so I had applied to a job with my current company um, right before I left, actually in November and didn't get it. And then around the time that we were in Uruguay, so during our first month, I saw another posting for a similar position. And I thought, you know what? I have nothing to lose. I don't have a job right now. Like they can reject me a second time. And okay. becoming okay with rejection is like, a, <laughs> it's a great gift. Cause you're like, you know what? Tell me no. Like, let's just, let's just try it anyway. <laughs> yeah. And it was, you know, still a company that I feel very passionate about and I really wanted to work for them. And so I applied again and I ended up getting an interview and getting a second round interview and then got the job. So I started, um, in April, the first Monday we were in Bolivia. Actually. I remember that. I remember you being in Bolivia trying to do these calls in the back of our quote unquote workspace. The, the worst workspace of the year. <laughs> Bolivia did not, as a country, does not have the best internet connection. And for whatever reason, Remote Year set us up as our workspace for the month was a not very great cafe that they just designated some of the rooms for us and so you try to be taking a call like making food and beverages like through an open doorway and yeah that was also the coldest it was very cold (laughs) it was not a warm month we're at altitude anyway it was lovely (laughs) yeah yeah. but so I started working then in April okay and what is this company that you work for um so Travel Noir started as a digital we're still a digital platform but it really is about helping what we call unconventional travelers of color see the world and um, kind of discover themselves through their own travel journey. And so it started because our founder had done a loose fellowship in India and she was traveling through India and Southeast Asia and really didn't see anybody who looked like her. She 
What's Let's a see. Loose Fellowship? Um, so it's Henry Luce. I believe he was the founder of Time magazine, but it's um, all they're all based in Southeast Asia. And so you apply and you come and you get placed in. I think you can rank sort of your countries like you would if you were applying to Peace Corps and you get placed in some countries. You got placed in India and you're working for a year. In some certain field or you get a job or? No, if it's, I think it's um, not nonprofit is the wrong word, but I'll have to look it up and I will tell you. But you're you're working in sort of social good and um, social entrepreneurship or something yeah, like that. Yeah, those types of things. Okay. And so she did, I don't know, I don't know how to pronounce it properly, but like the Yatri, there's like a train ride that started and India and so it's all young entrepreneurs and so they like everybody gets on a train and lives aboard this train for like a week um just <laughs> tosses ideas off of each other India does this mm-hmm. people okay. Indian entrepreneurs Indian entrepreneurs young people and so she did this train ride and found it really amazing it was actually a US-based um nonprofit who I d- had done some pro bono work for called the millennial train project but their founder also had done this and was very inspired and so he started doing it in the states a couple years ago and I think it's still happening I haven't looked them up in a while but their first train journey went from like San Francisco to DC and got you know a lot of young entrepreneurs not so it's like it's kind of like a networking and you're doing like classes or project or whatever and working yeah, on so your they're, project they're, and you're on a train <laughs> yep so they're like mentors on there and you're stopping along the way to do projects with each you know the local communities that you're passing through and so Anyways, that was one of the things yeah. that helped um, very cool. inspire her to, to think about travel. And I think India was the first time she'd been outside of the country. That's and a jump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so came back to the States and started an Instagram page, actually, um, just using the hashtag Travel Noir and getting people to use that hashtag, getting black travelers to use that hashtag and then reposting them. Um, basically to show the world that like black people are out there traveling. And it was sort of one to show companies and corporations that weren't necessarily targeting black travelers with their products, that there was a market for that, but also to encourage black travelers not to be scared. Cause I, I think a lot of people sometimes are scared that, you know, I'm going to go to this really foreign place and there's nobody that looks like me. And what are they going to think um, to say, Hey, people like you are out there traveling and you can do it. And look at this beautiful photo that, you know, proves that. Yeah. And so for a couple of years, it was building the, Building an audience, building that market, created then, you know, created a website online, which um, featured a lot of articles and resources for people. So 48 hours here. What do you do? How do you pack? Um, what and just and it's a mix of general travel and travel for the specific like yeah, audience. Exactly. And so what you need so a little know. bit of, you know, traveling with black hair. How do you take products to do that? On like a slightly darker note. Um, I was in the DC post office museum, whatever the national stamp, I don't know what it's called, um, a while ago. And that's a very nerdy thing to say, but I'll go to pretty much any museum (laughs) and it's free. You just like walk in and it's this beautiful old post office. And, um, but they had a room and I don't remember what like the theme of the whole exhibit is, but they had these old booklets from like, I don't know, like the fifties for like black travelers in the U.S. saying like you can go on these routes, you can stay in like these are safe places where like hotels will, you know, even though it's like post everything, like there's still issues. Yeah. I mean, there's still issues today. Um, I forget what those are called, but yeah, that they that was sort of the be if you were to trace the history of like black travel, those started with 
you know, people needed to know where they could stop and sort of plan their journey using those books. Um, Which is a whole other level of like, I mean, as a, a woman traveler, like I frequently am thinking about safety. And now that I've traveled alone a bit more, like where I book a hotel, like the area I'm in, like I'm definitely thinking about like my safety and the safety of my computer and everything else. But I think even though in a foreign country, race is an issue in my eyes because I'm like this clear, obvious foreigner, it's still a different issue of race that I admittedly haven't spent a ton of time thinking about how that changes the experience of travel and, and how you're perceived and how you feel. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting. And I'll get to like one of, one of our products um, in a second, but so for me, I think just because I, I grew up traveling, I'm pretty comfortable doing it. I don't always think so much about what it's going to be like or what somebody who is scared and is thinking of that feels like, cause I'll, go anywhere yeah yeah (laughs) Um, but we do get a lot of questions from people who you know is it safe for me to go here as a black traveler is you know are people gonna think something of me or am I gonna you know run into any trouble and it's something that people are definitely still thinking about and so we the website started and it was meant to provide resources for people to you know, help plan their trip. So to, to your point about the old booklets, right? Like if you read an article and it's written by somebody who looks like you, who's been to this place and they're saying, I stayed at this hotel, I ate at these restaurants, they were all great. You're probably a little bit more likely to trust those recommendations than some random one you might find sure. at TripAdvisor on another blog. Right. So that's one part, but, but the company then grew to become, um, you know, a little bit more multifaceted. So currently we have tea and experiences, which is the product that I primarily focus on. And so those are small group trips. We have seven destinations right now. And we take um, primarily travelers of color, primarily African-American travelers, but we've had um, black travelers from Africa, from Europe, from the Caribbean. We've also had non-black travelers um, who join us. And the point of those is really to get people to sort of live off the beaten path and experience life like a local. And do things in a country or in a city that they that aren't super touristy and so you know that they couldn't do on their own and then earlier this year so a couple weeks ago actually we launched a second product called compass which is an online community and helps people in their travel journey sort of grow um so you sign it sign up and you take a quiz and it tells you sort of what your level of travel is so it starts with you know somebody who's a novice then there's a Western world traveler, so somebody who's comfortable traveling domestically in the States, in the Caribbean, Mexico, that type of thing. Um, and then there's solo travelers, so somebody who's a little bit more comfortable getting outside of their comfort zone and traveling on their own. And then Maverick, an expert. And so, Are you a Maverick? Are you an expert? I'm an expert. <laughs> I mean, I guess you work there. You're an expert. Well, I want to take this test. <laughs> not all of us are. It's interesting because everybody has slightly different sure. you know, travel styles and what they're willing to do. But... So the point of this is that each week you get um, content that's targeted at your, you know, level of travel. And so there are master classes. So that's anything from it's a video recording, but with people who are sort of known leaders and in their field of expertise. So how to take better travel um, photographs and, you know, how to do other things that are relevant for travelers and then. There are distant guides, so that's like a full out itinerary to a certain place. So there's one like Game of Thrones, Croatia edition, <laughs> like really fun stuff. Um, that's cool. So all of these things are just meant. What the company is trying to do is really, 
you know, uplift the community, encourage people to travel and give them the tools to do that. And your experiences trips, are they typically like a week or? Yep. So they're all seven days, six nights. Um, and they're in based in one city. So we don't go to more than one city um, with the exception of our Cuba trip, which is new. Um, and that's really to get you, you know, sort of what we're doing with remote year. Like you're able to experience a city better over a longer period of time if you're not hopping around from thing from point A to point B and trying to see everything. So really getting people to understand that destination and we encourage them to, you know, if they have the vacation time and the money, come before the trip starts, stay after it and so that they have time to experience it even even more. Mm-hmm. Um, but so yeah, they're all a week and what, what are the locations? So we have Bahia and Brazil. We have Cuba, which is launching in March. Um, in Africa, we have Cape Town and Johannesburg, South Africa, as well as Zanzibar and Tanzania. And then we have the Which Amalfi. one did you go visit? I went, so I went to Bali. Um, I thought you also went to one in Africa. We went to Kenya for our team That retreat. was just a retreat. Yeah. Okay, because I was like, I feel like Kenya, <laughs> it looked amazing. It's not not an experience destination, although it is amazing. Okay. Um, okay. But so then we have Bali and then the Amalfi Coast in Italy. Okay, cool. Yeah. And are you specialized with certain programs? Do you kind of support all seven? So I, so at the same time that I started, another um, woman was hired, and so she and I sort of split our destinations. And so I'm primarily responsible for Cape Town, Johannesburg, and Bali. She's responsible for the Amalfi Coast, Zanzibar, um, Italy. I already said that. Cuba and Brazil. And okay. so. You know, we all share responsibilities. That's the, the interesting thing about working at a startup and on a small team because we're only seven people. Everybody is doing for the whole company everything. and everything. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Full time. <laughs> seven people. Yeah. Wow. And what are you fully organizing that whole experience in those locations? No. So um, what happens is we have like what we call an experience designer who is a person who serves as a tour guide for the groups while they're there. A local. Not always a local, Not always sometimes local. a local, sometimes somebody from the States who we know, who we think would be great at um, taking groups there. And so they'll help us kind of design the itinerary. We might have in mind a couple things we want to see on it, but we, you know, they go to that place, they're on the ground if they don't already live there and they're building relationships and trying to develop this sort of specialized itinerary for us. And so once that's done, we we talk to them, we look at it, we refine it, we test everything out and like make sure it flows and is perfect. Um, and that's sort of how it comes together. And so then depending on the destination, I'll sort of manage those vendor relationships and work with the vendor to make sure that everything we need for our travelers is taken care of. Everything from like what day and time we're coming, how do we pay you to here are dietary restrictions. If it's um, a food-based activity, please don't kill anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be ideal. So planning that, leading communications with all of the travelers um, who are coming and answering their questions, putting together all the documents that they get, and then continually like quality checking the experiences, researching new activities there, new hotels, and all that sort of stuff, just based on what we need at the time. And how often are, are people doing the experience in each destination? So it changes a little bit from year to year, but um, so typically at least once a quarter. Um, okay, so, so it's not a, a constant thing. It's no. like you do it and then you kind of like plan for the next one. And, mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. And how many people come on an experience? So each trip is 14 people. 
max. So sometimes there are a few less. That sounds really cool. Have you, and you got to go on one of the Bali ones. Yep, and I'm going back uh, <laughs> right after remote year. There's one that starts on the 31st, so timing worked out. That's good. But I went in September just because it was um, a few new experiences. We had a new photographer and a new experienced designer, and so I was going to kind of help train them, make sure everything was okay on the ground. Um, and it was really nice to sort of see how it played out in person because up until then for the previous few months I had just you know been planning and and talking to people and seeing how the activities um, experiences ran in other destinations but I had never seen one start to finish and it's a really different thing but also to the point of what I was looking for and sort of changing jobs like I could see the impact that the work I was doing was having on people um, right as there are 14 there. people who are yeah. having the experience that you've put together yeah and so that was really awesome and I still you know I'm in touch with some of them and people who are in um, Maryland and Baltimore you know planning to see them when I go back home and so that's really nice that's really cool so this is something you're planning on continuing and being part of in the future yep yep very cool so you mentioned a little bit that you have these calls and and obviously coordinating with everything with both your team and the, the local teams How do you do your job remotely? So I am very fortunate in that we are a remote only company. So I think um, it would have been a lot harder to start, particularly like while I'm already on the road, if it wasn't. Um, But so we use Zoom uh, for all of our video calls and we are in Slack all day, (laughs) maybe too much. but so we largely communicate with the team via we have daily check-in calls every day at noon. And everybody's on those. Mm-hmm. Noon yes. Eastern. Yep. Okay. So midnight. Midnight for me since we've been <laughs> in Asia. Um, but we have daily check-in calls. We're on Slack um, every day. And then during an experience with our, if we're, you know, communicating with people on the ground, they're in Slack as well. And obviously we use WhatsApp um, if it's you know, more urgent. People are used to using WhatsApp. It's a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. How is working? I mean, I know you weren't doing your job before remote year, obviously, but how did you find doing a remote job and in, in your work while being part of a program like remote year yourself? It's been challenging, but I think, um, it's, it's, I find myself like sometimes losing focus more recently now. And I think that's just because the program's ending and I like want to do all the things and see all the people. And, you know, yeah, we kind of have this like, oh my God, <laughs> it's going to go away. It's, it's especially harder because, um, so I guess to take a step back. So when we started, I was in South America. I worked sort of a nine to five normal day and I would be on Slack and we would talk in Slack and everybody sort of signs off and says bye. Um, and we're very big on company culture and, you know, work-life balance. And so when we're off, we're off. And unless there's a trip happening and it's over the weekend or it's at night, we're, we're sort of signed out when we're signed out. Um, once I got to Europe, I shifted my hours. So I think I started around 11 and I would work until 7 or 8 and then be done and go have dinner and whatever else was happening that night. It has been a little bit harder in Asia because um, in order to overlap with East Coast, I've split my day. So I work usually from like 12 p.m. or 1 p.m. until about 6 or 7. And then I'll take a break for dinner and I'll come back around 9, 9.30 and work until um, usually like 12.30 right after. So I'll usually sign off right after our daily sync call. Um, and it it's just... Um, 
not ideal, but you know, it's something that I'm fortunate enough to be able to be traveling and to be working. And so you figure out the times and, and make it work. But I am looking forward to being back on East Coast time and not having my evenings taken up with work. Nice. Very nice. I really didn't know that much about travel noir before we talked. I like high level, but it sounds super interesting. I'm really curious to check it out and all the materials they sound you should. pretty neat. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much for uh, talking to me today. Thanks, Catherine. This was fun. So Maya and I talked back at the end of remote year in January 2017. And now it's somehow over two years later. And I wanted to catch up again on what she's been up to since remote year ended. And she's moved back to DC and has a new job. So Maya, would you like to reintroduce yourself and what you're doing now? Yes. Hi, Catherine. Um, So I am back in DC. I'm from Maryland, right outside of DC. So I'm kind of back home um, and living in the city, which makes me very happy. And I'm working at Choice Hotels, which is one of the kind of biggest hotel franchising companies, along with Marriott and Hilton, which are also in Maryland suburbs right outside of D.C. But I am on what we call our business transformation team. And so we are part of the broader corporate strategy team. And I'm a project manager right now. And so essentially, everybody on my team serves as connection point across the organization. So anytime there's a big corporate initiative or critical project that the board of directors wants to see implemented, someone from my team will get involved. And we kind of view ourselves like Switzerland. We are the neutral party. We're not necessarily subject matter experts on anything, but we're really skilled at bringing people together cross-functionally, whereas oftentimes people are working in really siloed areas within their team. We stand up a lot of big cross-functional meetings and really make sure that a process or new program or new hotel brand or integration when we acquired a brand um, actually gets completed. And so we are the people chasing that on and organizing everything up. And so we're really part of the strategic um, team here at Choice. It's been a little while since we were finishing up remote year and had our interview, which you talked about working at Travel Noir. So can you recap a little bit of, you know, what happened when we finished remote year in Vietnam and then you went on to travel and kind of what happened next in that chapter? Yeah. I mean, I can't believe it's been two years, but I, I came <laughs> home from remote year. I, I took a couple of weeks in Bali after we left Vietnam and then I came home from remote year and I was back at home with my mom in Maryland um, and then went back to Europe for the summer and was traveling around with a couple of my coworkers through Portugal and Spain and kind of came back home after that and was working and was happy and wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. But was looking at, okay, if I want to be in DC, do I want to find some sort of a home base? Do I want to continue to travel while I can since I have this remote job? Um, And long story short, it ended up being that Travel Noir got acquired by another company. And so it felt like a natural kind of end point for me. I was about to go on a vacation to Alaska and Vancouver anyway. And so kind of my last day started with vacation. And when I came back home, um, this is I guess September of 2017 really had to take a pause kind of like I did at the beginning of remote year when I left my law firm to figure out, okay, what do I want to do next? So um, it was a little harder than I anticipated. I was definitely looking for a job longer than I 
thought I would have been going into that second kind of now put another job and I need a new one phase. But for me, I I knew enough to know that I didn't want to go back to a law firm. And I really didn't think that I wanted to go in-house either. And so I was trying to continue this trajectory of being at um, a startup. And I interviewed with a couple and talked to a few and none of those roles really panned out. And then I was getting um, a lot of responses from people who were kind of looking at my resume and said, well, you're a lawyer. You don't have your MBA. So really, what are you able to offer us? Um, And that was a little bit disheartening wild. But and um, actually go up and interview with an in-house legal position. And because I had been unemployed at that point for six months. And I was like, man, I really just got to like get back in there and start making some money. But I went to visit their office and I hated it. And I just could not see myself being happy there. And so I didn't settle. And I just continued um, looking and talking to people about what I wanted. And as luck would have it, and that's just those like, always make sure you're talking to people about what you want to do and what you're interested in. But I met my sister's best friend's other best friend is actually a recruiter here at Choice. And I had not really met her before, but we were all out having drinks one night. I was talking to her and she said, you know, you really should look at Choice. I think you would like it. And we, you know, she pointed me towards a couple of teams that she thought I might have some interest in. Um, and so about a month later, I saw a job pop up on the corporate strategy team. And she said, actually, I'm about to post a different job uh, on, on the BTO, which is what we call the business transformation office. And I think you would be a great fit for that. The manager is really great and like loved, you know, the leadership within my team and thought that it would be a good opportunity for me. And it turns out that it was. So I've been here a little over a year now and really loving it, getting to work on some um, exciting projects. That's awesome. Um, so, so you leaving Trouble Noir, was that because when they got acquired that the company, like they were just changing the way it worked or you just didn't want to keep working in the direction they were going or what kind of caused that shift? Yeah, it was a little of all of the above. I just felt like, um, frankly, it was, um, not quite enough money for me to live in DC in the way that I wanted to live. And at one point, um, the company that was acquiring travel or that did acquire travel Mars based in LA and they wanted everybody to move to LA and we're going to get rid of being remote, which was a huge perk for all of us, obviously. And, um, so I, I thought for me, you know, I had kind of mastered, um, the job that I was in there and I didn't see as much room for growth as I would have liked because we were such a small team. Um, And so as that happens, I just felt like, okay, this is a natural change um, and that's fine. And I'm going to look for other opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And um, I mean, I completely agree with you with talking to people about what you want to do and what you're interested in. I think that's how I've gotten either completely new clients and projects and also when working with a client already talking about what they're doing and what I want to do or ideas I have sometimes you know makes those projects become part of what I actually do and yeah I feel like if I were going to get a new job or new projects I would mostly just try to talk to every person I met (laughs) see which (laughs) there there was a lot of that there was a lot of a lot more time spent on LinkedIn than I ever would have cared to do and seeing, you know, what alumni organizations can I hit people up from and who is like a second or third connection that might be willing to introduce me to somebody. So 
had a lot of informational calls and interviews and had a lot of cover letters and resumes, but ultimately it, it kind of boiled down to who I knew and who knew what kind of opportunity I was interested in. And so you were specifically, you mentioned wanting to work at startup and is that just because startups are smaller teams where you have more responsibility and interaction with other people or what? And also how big then is the company you're with now choice? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'll take the first question first. So for me, I thought I, I liked the startup environment. Travel Noir, we were um, eight people when I left. And so you really got to know everybody and you really got to understand what was happening across the entire business. And so I felt like with the startup, I enjoyed that aspect of it. I also thought that given my background as a lawyer, I would have a better chance of being hired at a startup where they were more willing to take a risk on someone who hadn't necessarily had as much business training or who could come in and kind of put both hats on, both legal and a little bit of other startup experience. And I thought it was going to be easier to leverage that. Turns okay. out that wasn't the case. And I ended up at Choice, which is um, a publicly traded company and very corporate. But we are about, I think, 1,500 or so people. And so we have our headquarters in Rockville, Maryland. And then there's another office out in Phoenix. Um, but what's interesting is that I do still find that because because even though it's 1,500 people compared to a lot of bigger hotel companies, so taking your Marriott and Hilton again, they're way bigger. And so we do still have a lot more opportunity internally to, um, and particularly on my team, to get involved with a lot of big initiatives and have visibility to senior leadership and be in meetings where decisions are being made. And so that has been something that... Um, I kind of knew was the case going in based on the job that I was applying for and was something that was important to me. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I def I think that's, I mean, it's great to work at big companies too, but I think it is nice whether it's something that's a 15 person or like you said, 1500 people being able to be part of different types of work and have access to people and, and see decisions actually be made or how people work together to come up with the final decision or concept or whatever is like a really interesting and rewarding part of work, like rather than just feeling, okay, I'm a cog in the machine and I do this thing, but what is it part of and what, what does it contribute to happening? Um, that's cool. And, and you said, can you recap again, what your current role is and, and kind of what that, is a day-to-day -day responsibilities and tasks that you do? Yeah, so I am a project manager in our business transformation office. And we actually came up with our, our like internal team mission statement a little while ago. So I'll share part of what that is. And I think it helps explain what we do. But there are four of us on the BTO. And we really start each serve on our separate projects. We take project by project. And so none of us necessarily work on the same thing, but there might be a BTO representative on any number of large initiatives across the company. And so our role on each project is to be an objective connection point for the organization and really align people, process, and technology and bring together the cross-functional experts to solve whatever problem that project is meant to solve. And we're also making sure that everything we're doing as a part of that project and to get to the end point is really in line with our strategic corporate objectives. So day to day, what does that look like? Um, some projects are short and you might kind of 
parachute in and you're just working on that for a week or so. Um, others, there's one that I've been working on since I started. Uh, Choice acquired an extended stay hotel brand called Woodspring in February of 2018. And so I joined in May. And so I've been responsible for helping to lead the integration of Woodspring into all of Choice's systems. So that's integrating their people into our teams, integrating their hotels onto our website and our reservation system and figuring out how their processes are going to be wrapped up into these existing choice processes. And so that has been an ongoing and will continue to be ongoing um, at least for another year or so. And because of that, it was a really great introduction to company because it really touched every single different got to meet people who were working on a lot of different things um, and understand like what does our business intelligence group do? What does our marketing and distribution team and all of this kind of subject matter experts within that team, what do they do? Um, what do the folks in our Phoenix office and who are in charge of the technology, what do they do? And so it's been um, really great. Okay, cool. So is everyone on the BTO team a project manager? Like that is what the team is? No, so I mean, we kind of use project, honestly, we use project manager, um, although it is a part of our role. It's more of a title in the corporate title. So that choice, it goes, you know, analyst, senior analyst, project manager, manager, director, CT. So project manager really is referring to my level, but it also happens to be on the BTO that that is part of what we're doing. Um, Most of everybody on my team has a background in consulting, except for me. We are sort of viewed as the internal consulting team. People come to us when they have problems that they can't solve or that have gotten too big or too hairy and they need to figure out how to document and create a plan to get them to an end state. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. So I guess that's something I always, I'm sure if you already work in consulting, like the other people on your team, you would be more aware of the fact that those kinds of roles and needs exist at other companies. But I think as somebody from outside of that, it's interesting to realize that big companies would have these kind of internal consulting teams that you could be part of. That Yeah. And a lot of companies don't. And I, frankly, I had no idea that this type of role existed. Um, I've heard since that a few other companies do, but it's, they're always set up a little differently, I think. Um, and so what transformation means is different depending on um, who's explaining it. So for us, we're kind of viewed as the internal consultants and often people Day on the BTO for a couple of years. And then because of, by virtue of the fact that they've worked across the organization and built relationships across the organization, they might roll off into another role based on some project that they did and really liked or an area that they felt um, was interesting and wanted to get deeper in because we're very much generalists. And do you think you like that and want to continue with the generalist role for a while longer? Or are you starting to think, oh, I'd really like to work in this department more specifically in a year or something like that? Yeah, I don't know. I actually just had like a mid-year check-in with, with my manager um, last week and we talked about this a little bit because it's not a, you know, it's very much an open secret that that is sort of what our team does. But like, for instance, she's been on the BTO for five years and she said, I'm in no rush for you to go anywhere. So if you don't want to, that's fine. Um, there will yeah. be many more projects for you to work on. But if something 
comes up and piques your interest, then let's talk about it. But so far, no, I, I, I like the project basis. It reminds me of a lot of the work that I did as a lawyer and doing M&A work. We were very much generalists and got all of our subject matter experts involved, but I managed every contract and saw the deal through from start to finish. And this feels very similar in terms of working on a project basis and not getting bored with one thing. Um, and, and so I kind of like that. So I don't, I haven't made a decision yet, but I, I don't foresee that anytime soon. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I personally also enjoy the opportunity to do different projects and kind of adapt to and learn from different things coming my way. But I know some people get really excited to become an expert and go deep. So it's cool that they have that sort of a path available. Yeah, exactly. And so are, does that mean that you are still remote or you live in D.C. but go to Maryland for work? Yes, unfortunately. The commute and the open office plan have been, frankly, my hardest um, adjustments to make. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but my, yeah, so I commute out here every day. Usually I'll take the train. Some days I'll drive depending on the weather or how I'm feeling or if I need to stop and run some errands on the way home. But I walk like 10 minutes to the train and then it's 30 minutes. Um, so that's when I get my reading and news and emails done. Yeah. That's a funny, like, I don't miss the impact of having a commute in my schedule and how it can be kind of an annoying hassle, but I do find I spend significantly less time listening to podcasts, reading, doing a crossword when I don't have that kind of 30 minutes of train time or whatever. Yeah. I would definitely prefer you know, even if they were, if the office was in DC and I had a, a 10 minute, I used to have a 10 minute commute and that was fine. Um, Cause you can get up an hour later and I wouldn't have to go to a six workout class. I could go to a 7 a.m. workout class. Mm. But that is, you know, something that I knew going in and I still yeah. complain about it from time to time, but I'm used to it now. <laughs> and how have you liked living in DC again? It's, it's interesting when people, you know, live in a, a place travel, work remotely, do all these different things. And then you come back, like, did it feel like you were just, you know, putting on a familiar pair of shoes and it just, it happened very naturally to move back into life in DC or um, was it a big transition and did you approach it really differently? So it was definitely um, different. I think when I left, I was leaving and I can't remember if we talked about this um, initially, but I left for a remote year shortly after my sister moved to California and my best friend um, was moving to London. And so it was sort of feeling like, okay, this is a good time for me to leave as well. And so when I came home, I was initially, as I'd mentioned, staying back at home with my mom. And so that was one challenge of, okay, I'm not in my own space. And I had been used to that for the last, you know, however many years. Um, and so I was traveling a lot more because I wanted to kind of not be there all the time. And I could, and I had the flexibility to travel one while I was still with Travel Noir and two when I didn't have a job. Um, and so as soon as I got the job at Choice, I was like, okay, cool. Now I know where I'm going to be working. And I imagine that I'll be there for at least a few years. Like, let me figure out where I want to live. And because of the commute and I don't, you probably don't know the DC like metro system, but I knew that we were going to be on the red line. And so I wanted to be on the red line and I had an idea of where I wanted to live. And so I limited my search for an apartment kind of to that area because I knew that I didn't want to drive every day. 
Um, and so it was kind of back near where I used to live, although slightly, slightly different location, um, a little bit further away from the train. But it turns out that it's, it's been a really great location. I love my neighborhood and my apartment. Um, I don't mind the walk to the train. And when I'm at home and on the weekends, I try to walk as much as I can instead of driving around. And so I think coming back, it was really, I didn't feel like I had to, you know, build up my friendships or anything again. I had and have a lot of friends who, through work at my law firm or from school, live in D.C. And so I still get to hang out with a lot of them. Um, have made some new friends, which has been cool. And honestly, as an adult, it usually is harder. And it just, you know, friends of friends who we all were out at birthday parties and things. Um, ended up connecting with and so that's been really nice and then in the last month my sister's actually moved back home um to the area and so that has been really really great as well to have her back um in the area no that's the update i mean i think i do miss a little bit like being able to i guess the commute the open office and then the really having to watch my vacation i think i i in my previous two roles i went from one extreme to the other, like at the law firm, working all the time, really crazy hours, but getting paid very well. And then startup, really small. You get a lot of nice perks in terms of being remote and then limited vacation and all of that. Um, and now I'm sort of in this happy medium. And so it works, but I have to remind myself that, okay, no, you've had, you've had it good. And this is a really nice situation. And just like, watch how much vacation you're taking. We still, you know, it's fine. But but definitely I can't pick up and go when I see a cheap flight like I might have been able to do back in the day, but it is also nice to, to have a home base. I think it's good to test things out. You know, you have a few years of your, like you said, one extreme with the law career, then a couple of years with fully remote and traveling. Now you're going to have a few years with this setup. And I think, you know, some people get on a trajectory and they just stay on that kind of path and direction. And that's great. but. I think you can also do these kind of two to three year shifts and you sort of zigzag around, but it, it's interesting and you get different experiences and that's also a, a good life approach, I think. So, yeah. yeah, for sure. And the other, you just reminded me and I honestly, I don't know how I could have forgotten that, but the other thing that I did <laughs> like I said, in the last two years is I started this weekly newsletter called Folding Chair with two yes. friends. <laughs> um, and so that started... November of last year and it was kind of the culmination of conversations that we've been having over the course of they're they're both in TV one in reality TV and trying to move into scripted production and the other um, in news production and and we all met because we were in like a humanities program in middle school and worked on our high school newspaper and high school TV station and so this is sort of our common background um, I'm the only one who didn't make it a career but but we'd always been talking about, you know, what can we do together and what do we want to do? And I think when I came home, so this was in a period when I wasn't working full time and Trump had been elected and everybody's trying to think about how we respond to that and like, what can we do? And we felt like there was a space for having um, conversations with the Black community and community of color and talking about different angles of the things that we're seeing in the news that are impacting us and impacting people like us and um, really distilling down what we think is most important. And we also, I think, all 
love podcasts, we love reading the news, we love watching TV, but there's this sense of like, there's way too much content out here. We can't keep up. And so since we're consuming it so much, we know other people must be feeling this as well. And one thing we can do is kind of put forth our view on what we think is most important and most interesting. That's been great. I think we just did our 34th edition, taking a couple little mini breaks around holidays and things. But every Monday morning, we send that out. Um, and so we're just trying to be consistent. And so it's a weekly, it's a weekly newsletter that you send on Mondays, and it's it's recapping news and current event information. Yep, exactly. So we um, our tagline is creating community wherever we sit. So we're three black women writing it, and we write it from our shared perspective. But we're trying to focus on issues that impact the black community, and sometimes we talk about other. Um, communities of color and things that are happening. So we'll start with an intro of kind of one-liners, things that are interesting, but maybe don't require a full write-up. And then we'll cover six different topics through the newsletter and finish with what we call our FC phase. So something a little fun and interesting. Um, last week was that 2019 is the year of Shirley Chisholm, which is, we, we got our name from a quote that she has where she said, um, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. I was going to say, like, I feel like I know where this name came from. We're trying to do better about our social media. That is the one thing since all working full time and trying to do this. It's like we've gotten the newsletter itself down, but the addition of of social media and trying to like constantly have a presence there has been the biggest challenge. It definitely is. I mean, on my projects also, I find, you know, there's so many steps. There's creating and planning what you're going to do and and the creation of the thing itself, whether that's a podcast or an article or a newsletter, and then executing that. And then there's the whole next phase, which is essentially marketing. And that's social media, that's sharing it, that's getting other people to to share it, that's creating those images and quotes to put on Instagram, because that's actually separate from the content itself. And, you know, that's why it gives you an appreciation when you're doing it yourself for what organizations have so many different departments. And it's kind of like, what even is marketing or something? And then you try to manage it for your own thing and realize it can yeah. be a lot of time and it can be overwhelming. And also there's, it's just like, you got to relieve some pressure at a certain point and be like, okay, if I post one thing a week, that's all right. And for creating that weekly newsletter, do you all do the same thing or do you each have kind of a specific role? Like one of you outlines it, one of you writes it or... How does that come together? Yeah, we we try to be pretty um, equal <laughs> about it. Um, and so what we'll do is throughout the week, we have like a shared Google sheet and we drop in links to articles that we think are interesting. And every Thursday, we go through and vote on our favorites. And so whichever get whichever six get like the top two out of three votes is what goes in. Um, and then we each split up writing since there's six um, main blurbs we'll each write two of those and then somebody are the way that we send it out we use MailChimp but some of it some parts of it are built in Photoshop and so whoever's responsible for kind of putting it together will compile everything and send it out and then we all proof it okay so it kind of rotates around who has to do some of the different like the Photoshop yeah. MailChimp I'm a big fan of the skim. I don't know how much that was a reference or, um, it, you know, we said if Carly and Danielle can do it, so can we. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. it's, it's really nice to have, I mean, of course I appreciate multimedia and I think, 
you know, especially with the way Instagram is developed, like I do watch a lot more video now than I used to, but I still really appreciate being able to just read text, like digestible amounts of information that have been curated by somebody who's thinking about both wide ranging topics or the most popular topics, but also looking out for things that maybe aren't getting attention. And that's, you know, helpful to like, okay, this person or these people have curated that information for me and presented it in a way that I get a bit of that easy reference. So that's really cool. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me again and updating on what you've been doing in the past two and a half years. Yeah, I'll be interested to hear, you know, how the next couple of years unfold and and see where you end up. Yeah, it's great to catch up and I hope all is well. I'm happy to do it. You can find show notes from my conversation with Maya on our website, modernworkpodcast.com, where you can also find more episodes in which I interview people I've met around the world and learn about their work in various industries from graphic design to language translation to management consulting and more. If you enjoyed Maya's interview, please let us know via modernworkpodcast.com or on social media. Thanks so much for listening.